All right. I got busy talking. I lost track of time. So we need to get going. Well, if you got your Bibles open, open them up to Romans chapter 8. And uh, we're going to read that this morning and then jump right into it. So let me pray for us first. Father, we thank you for this morning and for the, the breakfast. We thank you for the beautiful weather we're enjoying. We thank you for uh, this part of the world in which we get to live. Thank you for our families, our health, our, uh, our jobs. Uh, Lord, thank you for so much that you do for us. And we thank you in particular for this chapter. And I just pray that you would open it up to us this morning, that it may come alive, that it may be an encouragement to us, that it might... Uh, Drive us to a deeper and deeper understanding of all that you've done for us and, Lord, all that you're wanting to do in us as we live on this earth and as we prepare for heaven. And may we never take our eyes off the fact that that is our true goal. That's where we're going. And so, Father, give us a a heavenly perspective, but uh, don't ever, ever let us lose sight of the fact that we're here to make a difference in the lives of so many who do not yet know Christ. So, Father, we love you, and we give you this time, and we pray it in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're going to read chapter 8. It's just one chapter, so if you've got your Bibles, open them up. All right, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind of the flesh is death, but to set the mind of the spirit is life and peace." For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness." If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus, Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. But if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit 
groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if, ho- if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for, for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what, what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword... As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Know in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, one chapter jam-packed. Man, he could fill up a passage with words. Uh, You know, it's interesting. This is considered by many uh, one of the the premier chapters in the Bible. It's it's put up there with uh, 1 Corinthians 13, the great love chapter. It's put on the same level as uh, Psalm 23. It's it's just considered a, a seminal verse in the Bible. But it's interesting that at least in my life, that may, may not be true for you, but it's almost all the time that I spent time studying it, I always gravitated to those verses, uh, starting in about verse 29, where he talks about foreknowledge, predestination, election. And, and, and if you're here this morning hoping that I'm going to unpack the secrets of predestination, you might as well take your coffee cup and go. Um, because it's really interesting that, that that has been debated for centuries, for eons, for decades. It continues to be debated what some of those words mean. I'm not going to dig into those words because it's interesting that Paul doesn't. Uh, Paul doesn't unpack them. Paul doesn't take an aside and dig into them. And hey, here's what you really need to understand. And I think if we spend too much time there, we're going to miss the whole gist of the chapter. Uh, and this chapter is an encouraging chapter. And a lot of you guys have been asking me, when are you going to start getting encouraging? When are you going to stop talking about all the negative stuff? Well, this is where we really get to hit it up and start talking about um, the positive aspects of our relationship with Christ. And there's going to be four things we're going to look at in particular. But it, it all gets set up, as, as is true anytime you study through a book of the Bible, it's set up from what we looked at earlier. And back in chapter 6... He, he mentioned this phrase that 
that we might walk in newness of life. Um, that's really the goal for Paul. Um, Paul was a, a zealous missionary. He was a zealous evangelist, but he was also uh, someone who he wanted to see people grow. It wasn't enough just to p- bring people to Christ and kind of make a notch on his Bible and go, there, there's another one. I, I want another one. He wanted to see them grow in Christ. That's why he wrote all these letters is that he was writing to churches to make sure, are you growing? It's not enough just to get saved. It's not just enough to experience justification. He wanted them to go through sanctification, to go through their maturity in Christ. And so he says that we too might walk in newness of life. But then we saw in chapter 7, you know, he, he gives that, you know, I don't do what I want to do. And why do I do what I don't want to do? And that dilemma that we all face as Christians. And he says, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, not the ability to carry it out. And he starts talking about this very real life experience for us as believers that we have our old sin nature and we have a new nature. And sometimes we feel like I don't have what it takes to live this life and I keep struggling with the same old sins. And so what does he say at the very end of that chapter, chapter 7? You know, he's talking about his flesh and then he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So he's again, he's talking about this body. He calls it the body of flesh. And it's literally this physical body that each one of us has that is um, marred by and infected by sin. You know, I taught uh, Tuesday night on the West Campus, and, and I told those guys, you know, that when you, when you f- are tempted to sin or you start doing something you know you shouldn't do, where does that come from? If you're walking down the street and you see a beautiful-looking girl, she's not dressed appropriately, and you start thinking lustful thoughts, where does that come from? It comes from this body, through our eyes, through our minds. It, but when you wake up in the morning and you want to have a quiet time and you know you need to be in the Word, what fights you the hardest? Is it Satan? Maybe. Is it a demon? Maybe. But it's really your flesh, because what's your flesh say? Now, just hit the snooze alarm, just 30 more minutes. You can do it later. And then four times hitting the snooze alarm, now it's time to go to work, right? It's our flesh. This body of death, as he described it, is constantly in battle with us. And chapter 8 tells us it's in battle with the what? The spirit who lives within us. So he's describing something that we all feel. This idea of my flesh, this body of death, and he says, who will deliver me? And then he makes an interesting statement, and it goes right into chapter 8. He talks about the law of God and the law of sin. With myself, I serve the law of what? God in my mind, but with the flesh, I serve the law of sin. So there's this daily battle going on with each one of us that I want to serve the law of God. I want to do what God wants, but I'm always tempted and struggling with doing what the law of sin wants, that's controlled by this body, doing what the body wants, the passions of the body. So he leads us into chapter 8. We just read it. And again, he brings up the law of the spirit of life, which is just mentioned, and the law of sin and death, these two laws. And they're going to become important as we go through this passage, as we try to figure out, okay, what are those? What's he talking about? But once again, he says in verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So he's, he's going back to this issue of how you walk. 
And again, the, the word he uses, and Paul loved this word when referring to our uh, faith walk, it's uh, the Greek word peripateo, and it literally can mean to walk, physically walk, take steps, move, or it metaphorically can mean to live out your life, conduct your life. And that's really how he's using it. As you walk about in your daily life, doing your life, do so in a way that's honoring to God and living according to the Spirit. And he'll unpack more what that means as we look at it. But we're to walk not according to the flesh, giving into the flesh. We're to walk giving into the Spirit. Now, you remember last week we talked about those two terms, indicative and, and imperative. Um, indicative just simply being the reality of who we are, the, the indicators of who we are in Christ. You are dead to sin, alive to Christ. You're a new creature. creature. You're putting to death the old nature. That's, that's the indicative. That's who we are, and it should dictate and determine the imperatives of our lives. So now what do we do? As a result of that, what Christ has done, how should it change the way I live? Well, I should live according to the Spirit. I should live according to what the Spirit would have me do, not this flesh. But again, it's a battle, right? And every day you have the choice to give in to one or the other. And so he goes right back to what we read earlier he said in chapter 6 that we might walk in newness of life. How do we pull that off? How do we walk differently than we used to walk? How do we walk more like Christ? Well, it's that we've got to walk according to the Spirit. We've got to have new direction. Um, many times in this chapter, when he's talking about the law, he, he's using the same word nomos that's used for Mosaic law. But it really has more to do with the principle of life. We have a new principle of life to live by. And it's the life of the Spirit. The law of the Spirit that leads to life. It's the same thing he referred to earlier as the law of God. We, we have a different principle that we're to live by. And that's why he says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know, when I, when I go through my life, and it happens every day... Hadn't happened yet that I know of, but it'll happen later, I'm sure. Something's going to happen. I'm going to sin. And what's the first thing that usually comes into our mind once we sin? That we deserve condemnation. We start condemning ourselves. Oh, God, I did it again. And we feel guilt and we feel shame and we feel like God is looking at it. What does he say? There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No more condemnation. Yes, I, I gave into the flesh. I did the wrong thing. But what I've got to immediately do is remember who I am, walk away from it, and go back to living who I'm supposed to be. No condemnation. It doesn't keep me out of heaven. It doesn't make God fall out of love with me. But it should remind me that that's not who I was meant to be. That is not who Jesus Christ died to make me. And I turn away from it. I repent of it. No condemnation. I love Romans 5.16. The free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. See, you got to keep going back. I told you last week, live with your head on a swivel as a Christian. Look back and say, I am, have been, already made, justified with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. I remain justified the rest of my life. That does not mean you are perfectly holy, that you are morally holy. It means that God has deemed you holy because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. 
And if you died today, he'd still take you. And you've got to keep remembering that. I am justified. And therefore, no more condemnation. I don't have to fear. I can come back into his presence and I can confess my sins and he's faithful and just to forgive my sins. He says in verse 18, chapter 5, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. If you take your eyes off of that, all of this will become so confusing and so frustrating as you live the Christian life. Remember, we're in this section now where he's talking about sanctification. How do you grow to be more like Christ? You are justified. You have been declared right by God. It's a judicial term, instantaneous. But now he says, now I want you to grow increasingly more like him. And it takes time. It's imparted to us over time. One was imputed like that. The other is imparted over time. So he talks about these two laws, this, the law of God and the law of, the, of death. So what are the law of sin and death and the law of the spirit of life or the law of God? I just want to do a real quick comparison. So one is the law of sin. And it's alive and well on this planet. We see it every day in action. We see it in our lives. You see it in your kids. I know your kids are cute and your kids are precious, but your kids sin just like everybody else. Um, we see it everywhere, right? The law of the spirit of life is the law of God. It's his law, his principles, his way of life. One was the old covenant. The other one is the new covenant that took place when Jesus Christ died. One is flesh dependent. If you're going to live by the law of sin and death, you're always living according to your flesh, trying to keep the rules, trying to do certain things to keep God happy. The other one, as chapter 8 is going to show us, is spirit dependent. I've got to lean on the spirit. And it's probably one of the areas in the Christian life we struggle with the most because I can't see him, I can't feel him, um, I'm not sure he's there. But what's amazing is he's talking to you all the time. You just ignore him. You, you, he's, he's saying, don't do that. Don't watch that. Don't go there. And you just go, yeah, but I want to. And you give in to your flesh. It's not like he's, he's quiet. It's not like he has no opinion. He shares it. It's just that we don't particularly like his opinion. It's like when your wife gives you advice. What do you do with that? Most of us ignore it. We nod our head. And, Thank you, honey. That's great. And then we go do what we wanted to do anyway. And then we wonder why our wives are mad at us. Well, we often wonder why we quench the Spirit and grieve the Spirit in our lives. One, define, righteous, define righteousness. The law defined righteousness, right? It came from God. Here's, here's what righteousness looks like. If you do these things and don't do these things, that will be deemed righteous. But it couldn't produce it, which is the problem the Jews had. They had the law. They just couldn't keep the law. They knew what to do, but they couldn't do it. They knew what not to do, but they kept doing that. So the law defines it, but it doesn't produce it, whereas the other produces righteousness that is acceptable to God because it's produced by Christ. It's what he did for us on the cross. See, what's interesting is I don't have to produce more righteousness to get into heaven. Now, you need to think about this. Everywhere through the New Testament, it tells me I am to increase in righteousness, increase in Christ-likeness, to grow in my maturity, grow up in my salvation, and yet it's not to get me to heaven because what gets me into heaven? It's the righteousness that was imputed to me by 
God through the death of Jesus Christ. I am righteous. What I'm doing now in this life called sanctification is I am willingly growing in and pursuing righteousness out of my love for what he has done for me. I have set for my goal heaven, and I'm pursuing it. And I know that in heaven I will be holy. And so if that's God's goal for me, that ought to be my goal for me, holiness. I want to be prepared for that. Not so he'll open the door and go, well, hey, you made it. You got holy enough. Oh, you missed it by 10 points. No, it's that that's the goal. I want his goal for my life. I want to be holy. Not to get in, but so that I look more like what he intended me to be all along. One exposed sin but couldn't remove it. The other removes both the penalty and the power of sin. One results in death. The other one results in life. So... Again, he's talking about these two laws. One is totally flesh-oriented. The other one is spiritual in nature. And that's why he's going to talk so much about the Spirit and the role of the Spirit in the life of the believer. He says, those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. If you're going to live according to the Spirit, you've got to think like the Spirit. You've got to want to know what the Spirit wants you to do. And I don't know any other way to do that than to be in the Word. If you're not going to be in the Word, guess what? You will not know what the Spirit wants you to do. You'll walk around going, hmm, I wonder what I should do. Should I do this? Should I not do that? Should I speak that? Should I not speak that? Should I act this way or act that way? If you're not in the Word, you'll never know because that's how the Spirit speaks to us is through the Word of God. So we're going to look at four things in this chapter, and and, um, they're really important things. It's not just about the Holy Spirit, even though that's critical, and that's the first part. In the first 14 verses, he's going to talk about the presence of God's Spirit in you. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the Spirit of God within you. But then he's going to move into the next verses talking about adoption, the permanence of God's adoption. This is probably one of the least preached on, taught on topics in the New Testament, and it's huge that you have been adopted by God. You're now his son. You are now his heir. You're a joint heir with Jesus Christ. Then he's going to talk in 18 through 30 about the peace of God's promise. God has promised something incredibly great for you, and it should in this life bring you peace in the midst of all the turmoil. And then finally he's going to talk about the persistence of God's love. God loves you, and there is nothing that will ever make him stop loving you. If you could get your head around these four things, I think it would be a game changer in your life as you live live in this planet, as you walk this earth. So in verse 6, he says, to set the mind of the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life. And he says, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. If you're going to live in the flesh and you, I believe as a Christian, can live according to the flesh, even though the spirit is within you. Why do I know that? Because I do it all the time. I, I, I grieve the Spirit. I don't listen. I ignore Him and I go do what I want to do, driven by my passions, driven by my desires, and I put my mind, set my mind on the things of the flesh rather than the things of the Spirit. And He says, Those who are in the flesh, if you're going to live your life as a Christian in the flesh, under the control of the flesh, you will never please God. I do not believe this passage is talking about those who don't know Christ. Because he's writing to Christians. 
And he's warning them that this can be a reality. In chapter 7, those ending verses were all about Paul showing what living as a Christian in the flesh looks like. And it's that kind of schizophrenic, I want to do good, but I don't. I I don't want to do this, and I keep doing this. Wretched man that I am, who's going to help me? Well, the answer is Christ, and the particular answer is the Spirit of Christ who lives within us. But I got to live according to Him. I got to set my mind on Him. That's why He says, "Set the mind in the the mindset in the Spirit is life and what peace." The reason so many Christians lack peace in this world is because we are living in the flesh. We read all these wonderful things in the Bible, and then we go out and we live in the flesh, and we lack peace, and we go, "Why don't I have that?" Or you look at your neighbor and go, why do they have peace? Why do they have comfort? Why do they have joy? Why don't I have joy? Because you're living in the flesh and not according to the Spirit. See, living according to the Spirit doesn't mean everything is going to go great and your life's going to suddenly be wonderful, but you will have peace in the midst of storm. You will have joy in the midst of sorrow. You will be able to make it through tough times. See, where I struggle the most in my life is when I hit a difficult patch in my life If I'm not in the Word, if I'm not living according to the Spirit, then I start to question everything. Why are you doing this to me? Why have you let this happen to me? Where are you, God? Why have you left me? Why have you forsaken me? And I lose my joy. I lose my peace. I lose my confidence. But if I am in the Word and I'm studying the Word and the Holy Spirit is speaking to me and I'm listening to Him, suddenly I view those events through a different set of lenses. And I'm able to say, I don't understand it. I don't particularly like it, but I know you're going to use this to transform me into the likeness of your son. You know, it's interesting. I did a funeral for one of the guys um, from our Thursday night group, uh, his 42-year-old son who suddenly died about two weeks ago. And it was interesting to do the funeral. And, And funerals are fascinating for me. I don't particularly like them, but they're wonderful opportunities, as you can imagine, to share the gospel. So I'm standing there doing this funeral, and I'm and I'm looking around, and I can see faces, and I can tell by what I'm saying because I'm sharing the gospel that there are some people who have checked out. And they don't even want to be there. And, but I'm looking at the, the, the family, Larry and his wife, and, of course, they're, they're heartbroken and they're crying, but I know they have hope because they know where he is. They know their son was a believer. And then I look around the room, and I see people who... I can just see it in their eyes. They don't have hope. And they're, they're thinking about They're looking at that casket going, that's going to happen to me someday. And they fear it with everything in their body. Why? Because they have no hope. Did this couple cry over the loss of their, their son? You bet. See, the Bible says we grieve, but not like those who have no hope. We have hope. They're sorrowful, but they also know they're going to see him again. That's what gets them through. That's what helps them make it through. But you've got to have the mind of the Spirit. You've got to set your mind on the Spirit and not on the flesh. And then he makes this interesting statement because he says, You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. What he's telling these believers he's writing to is that you've got to remember, indicatively, remember who you are. You have been changed. You have been transformed. When God looks at you, he sees you through the blood of Christ, and you are justified. And I have placed my spirit, God says, in you. Live like it. Don't live in the flesh. See, if you're living in the flesh, that's your choice. It is not God's choice for you. It's not God's will for you. It's not his best wish for you. It's your choice to live in the flesh. 
and yet you've got the Spirit living within you, and you've got a designation from God himself, the righteous ruler of the world, that you are righteous in my eyes, and someday you're going to spend eternity with me. And you've got to go back, and you've got to remember all that he has done. To be, uh, have a mind set on the flesh just literally means to be flesh-minded. And I don't have to, I hope I don't have to help you guys understand what that looks like, right? To be flesh-minded. You ever been flesh-minded on a Sunday morning here at the church? Don't look at me like that. I sit at that kiosk and I watch the women walk by and it is a battle to not be what? Flesh-minded. Because there's a lot of flesh on display. It's a battle, guys. Uh, It's easy to be flesh-minded in so many ways. Worrying about money, worrying about stuff, worrying about what you wear, worrying about what people think about you, worrying about your perception. We we are so fleshly-minded, and then we wonder why we struggle with the flesh. And the other one just simply means to be spirit-minded, to think about the things of the Spirit. You know, I've told you before, if you, if you struggle with lust, and if you particularly struggle with lusting after a particular person, pray for them. I mean, literally pray for them. If, if you see them and you start to lust, pray for them. And it'll, it'll, be, it'll be like the worst battle you've ever had in your life because your body's going to go, no, 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 no. Don't, don't, don't pray for her. Thank God for her, but just, no, lust after her. But if you say, you know what? She's somebody's sister. She's somebody's daughter. She may be somebody's mother. And you know what? She may be lost. I'm going to pray for her. I'm going to pray blessings on her. I'm going to pray God that would, God would use her and that she would grow in Christ's likeness. It's really hard to lust and pray at the same time. That's being spirit-minded, thinking like the Spirit would have you think. See people through the lens of the Spirit. If there's somebody you hate, your body's going to say, hate them. You have every right to hate them. And the Spirit's going to say, no, pray for them. Encourage them. Want what's best for them. Serve them. I told my daughter that the other day. She works in Dallas for a company, and she's got... uh, a superior you know, boss over her that she just drives, drives her crazy and she just is always telling me, Dad, Dad, she just drives me crazy. She just drives me crazy. She makes my life a living hell. And I, When's the last time you prayed for her? Well, I don't know. I said, well, start praying for her. I don't want to pray for her. I said, I know you don't want to pray for her. That's the whole point. Pray for her. What do I pray for? Pray, pray, pray blessings. I don't want her to be blessed. That, that, that's not up to you. Leave it up to God. Pray for her. When's the last time you asked her how she's doing? I've never asked her how she's doing. Well, how, how do you think that would be if you went up to her and said, Hey, how are you doing? I'm, I, I'm, I'm concerned about you. Is there anything I can pray about? And I can just see the fear in my daughter's eyes. She's like, Dad, this is work. I said, No, this is your life. And, and she hasn't done it yet, but I'm still going to keep planting those seeds because I know it's a game changer if she would learn to do that. She'd start living with her mind spirit-minded instead of fleshly-minded. See, it's, it's, it's not difficult. Well, it is difficult, but it's simple. We just don't want to do it. So he says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and that's not like, well, maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. He's saying, if he does, 
And Paul has made it clear the Spirit does. If He lives in you, you should live differently. It's the same Spirit who raised Jesus Christ from the dead, and He lives in you. You have a power available to you like you can't believe, and yet you don't tap into it. 1 Corinthians says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? The Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. He goes on and says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You don't belong to you. Wait a minute. Yeah, I do. I do stuff for me all the time. Life's all about me. Knowing God says, No, it's not. It's all about the Holy Spirit controlling you. When the Spirit of truth, Jesus said, when he comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he speaks, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. See, he was telling the disciples that there's a power coming, and it's a power like you've never known before, the Holy Spirit who dwells within you. And so if you are live according to the flesh, you're going to die. That doesn't mean you're going to physically die. It doesn't mean you're going to spiritually die. It means that you will not enjoy the life, the abundant life that Jesus said you, he came to give you. And a lot of us are stuck in that trap. We're not enjoying that life. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. How do you put to death the deeds of this, this thing? By listening to and being spiritually minded. Listening to what the Spirit says as He speaks to the Scriptures. Stepping out in faith when He says, Okay, Ken, I want you to stop doing that. Ken, I want you to stop watching that. Ken, I want you to do this. believing that if I do that, even though I don't want to, my flesh is fighting it, I will be blessed in the long run because I'm living with a spirit-minded life. That's what this is all about. That's why in Galatians, which is really a, a companion book to this one, he says, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. You've got to walk by, live your life according to the Spirit and not the flesh. Is it a battle? Yes, daily. But it is not impossible it's actually highly probable that we can do it because God's commanded us to do it. He never commands us to do anything we don't have the power to do. And if you want to know what the difference is, we've looked at these verses before. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on, on them, but Galatians 5 tells you if you want to live according to the flesh, here's what you'll produce. Dissensions, idolatry, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger. If you want to live according to the Spirit, joy, peace, love, goodness, righteousness. And we see it happen every day, right? If, if I live according to one, I produce this fruit. If I live according to the other, I produce this kind of fruit. But you've got to choose which one you're going to live according to. All who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. And that leads us into this issue of adoption, the permanence of God's adoption. You are adopted. You have been adopted. My uh, daughter adopted a little girl about seven months ago, a little African-American girl, and, and uh, we had her over at the house the other night, and, and she is ours. I mean, she, I love her to death. And, and she is now our daughter's child. She is our grandchild, and she is that until... The cows come home. It's permanent. And we've got to understand that that's the same thing that is true with you and your relationship with God. The presence of the Spirit, we're told in this passage, guarantees our sonship. The very fact that you have the Spirit means you belong to God. You're a son of God. You've been adopted into His family. 
and you're his heir. That's a little hard for us to get our heads around, right? That you're an heir of God. But everything that belongs to him, everything that has been promised to him, everything that belongs to Christ is now yours. You're going, well, let me have it. Where is it? I'm living in abject abject poverty. Come on, God. No. You don't get it all now. You're not like the prodigal son that goes, give me all my inheritance now. You, You learn to wait. You understand that it's out there. He's got it reserved for you. And in the meantime, guess what? And this is the part we all hate. As God's sons, we will be called to suffer as Christ did. That's what this passage tells you. Wait a minute. That's not fair. No, but there's so much more coming. We will suffer in this life, Jesus said so, but we will also be glorified as he was. See, there's, again, head in a swivel. He's done this for me. Here's my life right now. It's got some suffering involved, but guess what? I'm going to be glorified. I can handle this because I know what's coming. And if you lose sight of that, this, ne- this will never make sense and you'll always be frustrated. You've got to remember what's coming. And that's why he says in verse 18, I consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing with the glory that is to be re- revealed to us. You go through difficult times. You may be going through one right now. You may not like your life. You may not like your circumstances. You may not like your marriage. You may hate your kids. I don't know what it is. But guess what? Your current sufferings are nothing compared to the glory that's to come. That God has something greater in store for you. You've got to understand you're adopted, and that adoption will never change. And then he tells us the peace of God's promise. There is glory to come. What is God's promise for you and I? He tells us here, he says, We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. You know what the ultimate goal is for you and I? He tells us right here, In this hope you were saved. Why were you saved? To forgive your sins? Great. But if there's not heaven, what difference does it make? Did he save you to make you a better person? Technically, yes. But he saved you to make you a glorified person. And that happens in glory. Heaven's the object. This is what he's talking about. We groan. We should groan for and long for that because that's the culmination of the process. Look what he says in 2 Corinthians 5. We know that if this tent, this body, our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God. In other words, a new house. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, excuse me, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. For while we are in this tent, we groan being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal, this, may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. What's he saying? Heaven's the goal. Your redeemed body is the goal. Health in this life is great, but it is nothing compared to perfect health in the life to come. And he says the Spirit helps us in our weakness. This, this jumped out at me this week thinking about this passage. It's all about the Spirit helping you in your prayer life. But here's what hit me. What's my greatest weakness? Now, I got a lot of them. But here's one of the greatest ones in my life, patience. I'm the most impatient guy in the world. And when it comes to the promises of God, I'm highly impatient. And the longer I live in this planet, I'm getting more and more impatient to just, just wrap this puppy up. Come on back. Get it over with. Let's move on. Let's get to heaven. 
but I got to wait. And that's my second hardest thing for me to do is wait. See, he put me here. He's told me, this is your goal. This is the objective. This is the best part of the plan. This is the current part of the plan. And I'm growing impatient and I'm getting tired of waiting. But I got to keep going. I got to keep believing. And he says, the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And then he says that we are called according to his purpose, the will of God and the purpose of God. You ever thought about that? What is it? What's his purpose? Well, that's what verse 29 that we beat over senselessly all is about. He says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those he predestined, he called. Those who he called, he justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. What's the end objection? What's the purpose? It's glorification. What's the will of God? 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. This is God's will for you, your holiness. What's your will for you? Depends on the day. Depends on how I feel. How much money I have. How much money I don't have. No, this is the purpose of God, our glorification, that we might be glorified. That is the ultimate purpose for you and I. And so I wrap it up with this, Colossians 3. If then you, you out there, me, have been raised with Christ, and we have, indicatively, seek the things that are above, imperative. Seek that. What is, what is that? Not just heaven, but the things of heaven. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, past tense. Your life is hidden with Christ in God, present tense. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory, future tense. Live with that in mind. Live with that in mind. And then he says, who can be against us? He goes through this list of all these different things. Who can bring a charge? Who is to condemn? Who shall separate us from the love of God? And he says, in all these things, all the things that happen to us in this earth, nothing can separate us from the love of God. See, I don't know what's happened to you. I don't know what's going to happen to you this week. I don't know what trials you're going through, but here's the persistence of God's love should comfort you. He loves you. He sent his son to die for you, and he's sending him back to get you, and he's prepared a place for you in heaven for eternity. And so we go back. The peace of God's promise should motivate us. There is a glory ahead. There is something better ahead. The permanence of God's adoption should assure us he's never going to go, I'm done with you. I de-adopt you. No, I'm his. The presence of God's spirit should empower us. I have the spirit and I have the power to live the life I've been called to live. And this is what led Paul to say in the end of his life, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've remained faithful. And now the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, but all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. Do you look forward to his appearing? Do you look forward to that day? So here's your question for your time around the tables. Which one of these four that we went over do you struggle with the most? The presence of God's spirit, the permanence of God's adoption, that you really are his son, the peace of God's promise that there is a heaven and that you're going there, or the persistence of God's love that he does not fall in and out of love with you.
Which one of these do you struggle with the most? Maybe it's all four. But as you talk about them around the tables, just encourage one another that these are indicatively true. They don't change because our God doesn't change. But how will they change the way we live our lives here and now? Father, thank you for these men. Thank you for their faithfulness. Bless the time around the tables. Use this time in in an incredible way to open hearts, to change perspectives. May we be loving to one another as we talk, encouraging to one another as we hear things shared, that, Father, we all might grow in Christ-likeness and ultimately towards holiness. And we pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.